0: Proverbs chapter 17, and we'll read verses uh, uh, 10 through 15. So let's give attention to the reading of God's word. Proverbs chapter 17, beginning in verse 10. Hear now the word of God. A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. An evil man seeks only rebellion and a cruel messenger will be sent against him. Let a man meet a she-bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. If anyone returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. The beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord." May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Father God, we pray that as we peer into your wisdom and into your heart, we ask, O Lord, that you would reveal unto us knowledge, understanding, wisdom, and ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would see that indeed he is your power and wisdom and that in him we have a wisdom from on high that equips us for every good work. And so we pray that, O Lord, you would glorify yourself in our midst, that you would teach us to fear you, and fill our hearts with the wisdom of your Son by the power of your Spirit. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. At times, it often seems that as Christians, whether us personally or perhaps those we know, we approach wisdom and folly in terms of the consequences that arise from making those different types of decisions. We put the consequences of wisdom and folly in the balance, and we see the punishment, we see the discipline. Uh, We see the loss that is often associated with folly. Conversely, we note the blessing, we note the peace, and uh, as well as uh, the things that we gain from pursuing the wise path. I've heard some children, not my own, but I've heard some children simply obey their parents because they don't like being punished. I don't like the pain, so I'll just go with the path of least resistance. On the other hand, I've heard another child, again, not in my household, say, "Eh, it only hurts for a little while, just go ahead and do whatever you want, it's no big deal. I wouldn't advise that route. Nevertheless, what we do is we put, uh, you know, wisdom and folly in the balance, and we say, well, I don't like the pain, so I'm going to go over here with the path of least resistance. There are all sorts of other benefits. Well, as much prudence as there might be to approaching wisdom and folly in this manner, I think it only scratches the surface as to why we need to flee the consequences of folly. And Solomon here in these verses, in chapter 17, verses 10 through 15, he explains the negative effects of folly, uh, and he tells us, hey, this is why you should flee it, run from it, Uh, don't engage in foolish decisions, But at the same time, I think what he drives at here is he gives us deeper reasons as to why we not only need to flee folly, but at the same time, we need to pursue wisdom. And it ultimately boils down to we don't want to simply flee negative consequences, but rather we want to love Christ. We want to love our triune God. So in other words, there's a world of difference between saying, I want to avoid folly because of the pain that is associated with it versus I really want to show by my life and by my conduct and by the decisions that I make that I love God with all of my heart, soul and strength. There's a significant difference there. But at the same time, we should also remember that love and a love for God is only something that we can receive by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. So we want to keep these things in mind, pursuing wisdom out of a love for God, and of course, at the same time, seeking to avoid the negative consequences of folly. And we want to do so under three headings. First, we want to look at fools and rebuke. Secondly, we want to see the idea of fleeing from fools. And then third and finally, we want to take a look at fools and fighting. So fools and the rebuke, fleeing fools. And then third and finally, fools and fighting. So let's first look at verses 10 and 11 and give thought to what Solomon has to say about how fools handle rebuke. Now, in the previous verse, which we didn't read, but it was from the last time we looked at Proverbs 17, we see in verse 9 that what Solomon has to say about covering an offense. He says, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Well, as wise Christians, what what Solomon says is, we should seek and be willing to cover offenses. In other words, when somebody wrongs us, We shouldn't be hell-bent on revenge or seeking the desire to expose the other person's sin because we have to remember we're not always the victim. We may be the victim in one case, but undoubtedly at some point we are going to be the perpetrator of sin. And so how would we want someone to treat us? Therefore, we should want to treat others in this respect. You know, when Paul, for example, uh, taught the Galatians, he says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You know, one of the things that often tempers my own parenting, and especially my own discipline of my children, uh, and I think it does, it's the same thing for my wife, as I try to remind myself and my wife, God does not deal with me. He does not deal with us as our sins deserve. If I got punished to the extent that I deserve it every single time that I sinned, um, I'd probably be pretty miserable. You know. And so I often think how gentle and how kind God is with me. And if that's the case, then that's how I need to be with my children. That's how I should try to be with others. We should seek, therefore, to cover offenses. And by cover offenses, Solomon does not mean ignoring sin. He does not mean uh, turning a blind eye to it, but rather he means being willing to forgive someone and not broadcasting the fact that someone has sinned against you. So we should be willing to forgive and forget, but at the same time, coupled with verse 10, it also means that we should not shy away from the rebuke. So covering an offense is not antithetical to the rebuke. He says in verse 10, a rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. So while we can and should be willing to cover an offense, we should be willing to offer rebuke as well. Now let's be honest. I don't know about you, but rebuke is a dish that I don't particularly care for. Not on my favorite list on the menu, you know. But at the same time, what Solomon says is that a wise person will consume a dish of rebuke down to its last morsel. Why? Because the wise Christian is humble. He's willing or she's willing to accept rebuke when they've sinned because it helps them get closer to Christ. It removes sin from their lives when somebody points it out. But by contrast, the fool runs completely in the opposite direction. And this is why Solomon says that the fool requires a hundred blows, which is a hyperbolic way of saying... It's next to impossible to convince a fool of his folly. So notice how how this is pairing in terms of, you know, covering an offense. You can cover an offense. And if you are dealing with a wise person, you can rebuke them. And they'll receive it. And they'll receive it well. Which says as much not only if you are dealing the rebuke, but also if you are receiving the rebuke. But fools, on the other hand, are hard-hearted. They're filled with arrogance, and they ultimately only take their own counsel. Think, for example, of the many blows in the Bible that fools have suffered. Think of Pharaoh. How many times did God deliver blow after blow against the Egyptians and against Pharaoh, and yet he refused to let Israel go? According to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 13, the Israelites repeatedly received the blows of God, and yet they too refused to turn to God. The people did not turn to him, says Isaiah, who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the fool flees from the rebuke. The fool takes a hundred blows and still does not respond. By way of contrast, the, the, the wise person heeds the rebuke. What did it take for David to heed the rebuke of the Lord? He was mired in his adultery. He was mired in the sin of murder. And yet... When the prophet Nathan approached him and told him a parable, and Nathan saw that David could see the injustice in the parable when the man who had many sheep and many flocks and many herds took the one ewe lamb of the poor man, and David said, Such a person has committed great sin. And then Nathan turns to him and says, Thou art the man. A few simple, small words. And David was cut to the quick. He received the rebuke. He was a man of understanding. He was a man of sin, as we all are. But he was a man of understanding because the Spirit of God convicted him. We mentioned this uh, this morning and that when Peter was in the middle of denying Christ. It only took a glance from Christ to cut him to the quick. Luke twenty two sixty one and the Lord turned and looked at Peter and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. But again, we have to remember that it's only God who can give us a wise and discerning heart. Only he can enable us to receive the rebuke well. You know, what does the prophet Ezekiel say in Ezekiel 36, 26? I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from uh, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So in other words, if we're seeking wisdom... And if we're seeking to be wise people, people that exhibit and manifest the wisdom of Christ, it means we have to continually seek out Christ and say, give me a pliable heart. Give me a heart that is willing to receive rebuke. Conversely, within the context of the passage, we can also say, give me the courage to be able to to administer a rebuke if necessary. Of course, We also have to have have to have the wisdom to be able to discern whether or not the person that we're seeking to rebuke is capable of heeding the rebuke. So often uh, in life, whether it's in ministry, whether it's in family life, you know, uh, I I will uh, have some sort of situation that the Lord puts in my path where somebody needs a rebuke. And my wife will ask me, are you going to say something? And I'll say, maybe. I say, but for sure not now. And then she knows what's next. And my wife says, oh, is it because you don't think you have a listening ear? And I said, yeah, I don't think I have a listening ear. Sometimes you have to use wisdom to to perceive whether or not somebody is prepared to listen to the rebuke. Sometimes you have to say, you know what, I don't know that this person is, is at all prepared to hear the rebuke. Sometimes I have to utter the words, I think this person is much too foolish in order to hear anything that I might have to say. Now, in some circumstances, again, it calls for wisdom. Sometimes you've got to let the rebuke fly, regardless of whether or not the person is prepared to hear it or not, because they need it. But nevertheless, a rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. But conversely, I think that we also have to recognize that it's God who will ultimately hold us all accountable, apart from or in concert with the rebukes that we do distribute or receive. He says, Solomon says in verse 11, an evil man seeks only rebellion and a cruel messenger will be sent against him. You know, in other words, sometimes we wonder, well, Lord, what's going to happen if this person that I rebuke does not respond to the rebuke, doesn't listen to it? Well, what Solomon says is, don't worry, God's watching, and he's going to hold them accountable. This is why he says an evil man only seeks rebellion, and a cruel messenger will be sent against him. And what some commentators think is the cruel messenger is ultimately the angel of death. You know, think of Pharaoh again. He received a hundred blows, speaking hyperbolically, and yet he would not relent from his folly. And so for his rebellion, God undoubtedly sent a cruel messenger against him when he pursued the Israelites through the Red Sea unto his own demise, his death, and the death of his army. So if we're thinking about the consequences of folly, I think we can certainly say, I don't want to have that cruel messenger sent against me. Moreover, I don't want to be the recipient of a rebuke. But in and of themselves, those are very shallow reasons for pursuing the path of wisdom. The deepest and the most important reason to pursue wisdom is not simply to avoid the rebuke, It's not simply to avoid the consequences of divine discipline, but rather it's to say, Oh, Lord, I love you, and I want to honor you with my life. I want you to conform me to the image of Christ so that people do not have to rebuke me because I don't want to bring dishonor to your name. Moreover, I don't want to incur your fatherly discipline and displeasure. So in other words, we should ask ourselves, Why am I seeking wisdom? Is it out of a sense of pride because I don't want somebody to correct me? I don't want to face the consequences of foolishness? Or is it out of a deep, grace-filled love for our triune God? Secondly, when we think here of what Solomon says in verses 12 and 13, we can say that he talks about the importance of fleeing fools, if God sends his messenger of judgment against the fool, then this naturally means, hey, stay clear of the fool. You don't want to be around when the fool gets judged. And so for this reason, he says in verse 12, let a man meet a she-bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. Now, this may seem a bit out of place, but believe it or not, it was quite common. Bears lived in great abundance in Israel and in the surrounding nations But they essentially were hunted into extinction. And the last bear was killed in Syria uh, just before World War II. But the imagery is clear here. In that uh, when my family and I, we went to the Grand Tetons a couple of summers ago. And uh, we were going to go on hikes. And the rangers uh, encouraged us, well, you might want to buy some bear repellent. You know, bear mace, pepper spray. And it's the industrial kind. came in a big old can. It looked like a can of hairspray, but it wasn't hairspray. It was like pepper spray. And it was like $50. And my wife said, that's kind of expensive. Do you think we really need it? I said, I think we'll regret it if we don't have it. And it's worth the 50 bucks because if we run across a bear on the path, uh, you know, I, I, I think it would be good for us to be able to fend off the bear. But what they especially warned us is they said, yeah, you know, keep your bear spray at hand, make a lot of noise and, you know, be careful out there. But if you see cubs, really be worried and steer clear. Because if the mama bear thinks that you are going to harm her cubs, she will come at you with everything that she's got. Because she will seek to defend those cubs. So if you ever see bear cubs... Uh, look around, try to find the mother, and then head in the opposite direction as, as smartly and as calmly as you know how. And this is the imagery that, that Solomon says as he says, Hey, stay clear of a she bear robbed of her cubs. That is one angry mama bear. But you know what's worse, says Solomon, is a fool in his folly. <laughs> it's pretty powerful imagery when you think of it. As cute, uh, I mean, as as ferocious as a bear can be, the fool is even more deadly. It's even deadlier. The, The mother bear can tear you limb from limb, whereas the fool can perhaps have an equally, if not more, devastating effect upon the life of the wise. You know, so an angry fool, for example, can bring a world of hurt upon you simply from his lack or her lack of self-control. Think of the destruction that Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, brought against Shechem's sons for sexually assaulting their sister, Dinah. They killed every single male inhabitant of the city think of Nebuchadnezzar's unrestrained wrath where he instructed his men to conduct or to to construct a fiery furnace and that it would be heated seven times greater than any other furnace that had been built before so that he could put Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into that fiery furnace, or think of Saul's foolish anger, as the book of Acts says in chapter 9, verse 1, that he breathed out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So think of, of the, the rage that can uh, and the danger that surrounds fools in their anger and in their lack of self-control. You want to steer clear. King David was almost himself carried away by his own foolish rage when Nabal, which incidentally, if you recall, means fool, insulted and verbally accosted his men in 1 Samuel chapter 25, but yet it was the wise words of Abigail who turned him away from his foolish course of action, from venting his rage against Nabal. So now this is one of the things that Solomon says here. He says, hey, steer clear of the fool, especially an angry one. And the wise Christian should flee the wrath of fools for a number of reasons, but at least Solomon gives one. He says this in verse 13, If anyone returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. You see, in their rage, angry fools seldom seldom slow down enough to ensure that they're not trampling upon the righteous. They're so intent on exacting revenge that they ultimately end up sweeping up the wicked as well as the innocent. And so God, just as God judges the wicked by sending his messenger of judgment against them, so Solomon observes that evil does not depart the house From those who return evil for good. In other words, God sees everything, and though He may not be visible to the naked eye, He holds us accountable for our actions. David's men protected Nabal's property, and for this good, Nabal returned evil upon them by reviling and, betra- and berating them. And so, what did God do? He judged Nabal for his evil actions. First Samuel twenty-five thirty-eight. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. How does David comment upon this? Next verse, First Samuel twenty-five thirty-nine. The Lord has returned evil on Nabal and his own head. So Proverbs 17, 13, if anyone returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. So what what Solomon here is saying is he's saying, first of all, avoid the fool, the angry fool, because they are encompassed by rage and you're liable to be injured or even hurt or worse in the process. But one of the other reasons he says you want to avoid the angry fool is that if they return evil for good, that means that evil will rest upon their house. It will, this cloud of anger, this cloud of rage, this cloud of evil will hang over them. And so you see this falling upon the head of Nabal. Evil doesn't depart his house and he dies. God judges him. Think of how God visited discipline Upon the house of David by taking his uh, child of adultery that he had to, with Bathsheba, and he uh, gave his house over to murder and incest. In the simplest terms, what Solomon ultimately is saying here is he's saying, You reap what you sow. What does Paul write in Galatians chapter six, verse seven? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows that will he also reap for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption and the one who sows to the spirit will reap from the spirit uh, eternal life. And so what what Paul is saying, what Solomon is saying, is he's saying, avoid the fool, because the fool is sowing evil, and the only thing that they're going to reap is evil. You know, uh, if you hang around foolish people, you're going to get swept up in their evil ways. You will suffer the same judgments that they suffer because you've associated with evil and foolish people. But what it is for the wise person is that it's Christ dwelling in us that enables the wise Christian not to engage in sin, not to return evil for good, but instead to return good for evil. What does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 39? But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek... Turn to him, the other, also? The wise person, unlike the fool, the fool sows evil. He gives evil for good. But the wise Christian gives good for evil. When somebody slaps him... He turns the other cheek. That's ultimately what it is, is it's the sufferings of Christ. As Christ himself suffered in order to redeem us, so we as his image bearers, we who have been redeemed, we who have been called to live out the wisdom of Christ through the indwelling power and presence of Christ and his grace, are willing to take the blow so that the person will somehow see in that action the grace of forgiveness, the love of God, and the undeserving mercy that they can receive through the gospel of Christ. So do you see, once again, what Solomon ultimately is showcasing here is is should we flee the fool who is filled with rage and anger? Yes. Why? Well, the shallowest of reasons are so we don't get swept up in the evil in which they are engaged in, so that we don't fall under the discipline of God and get judged as they will be judged. But the deepest and the most important reason is, is we want to disassociate ourselves from the fool and flee from them so that we can instead flee to Christ and manifest the love and the wisdom of Christ in our actions so that rather than... Giving evil for good, we instead give and return good for evil because ultimately that is what we have received from God in Christ. Good from the evil that we give. We are sinners and yet in our sin, God has mercy upon us and he gives us his love and forgiveness in Christ. Third and finally, when it deals, when it comes to fools and fights, If we have to flee from fools and foolishness so that we don't get tangled in their web of anger and rage, how are we supposed to ensure that we never step into that web to begin with? Verse 14, the beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. If you turn on the spigot of anger, the quickest way to stop the flood, close it. Close it before it even gets started. You know, one of the things that I'm sure you do, and I I didn't have to really do this in California, but here in Mississippi, when you get those cold, hard freezes, you know, you have to go around and you have to shut off all your water pipes outside. And sometimes it's best even to drain the the water out of the pipe. You shut it off at the main, drain the water out of the pipe, and then cap it off with a nice insulated cover so that the pipes don't freeze and then burst. Well, there's there's a sense in which we can say that what Solomon is saying, he says, hey, don't let a fight break out to begin with. Just turn off the spigot, drain the pipe, make sure that there is no anger there to begin with. Don't let it get started in the first place. In other words, quit while you're ahead. Now, I think there's a num- there are a number of ways to do this that the Bible presents to us. In other words, how can you head off a fight with a fool? The first way we could do it is simply to remain silent. Remain silent. You turn off the spigot of your mouth. David writes in Psalm 38, verses 13 and following, But I am like a deaf man. I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, who will uh, answer. In the face of uh, accusations, David said, I'm going to be mute. I'm going to wait on you, O Lord, to vindicate me. I'm going to remain silent. And in this regard, I think David prefigures the silence of Christ before his accusers. Here is Christ, wisdom incarnate, that when the accusers were hurling lie after lie against him, as a lamb before it shears is silence, so Christ opened not his mouth. A second way that we can ensure that we don't let a fight with a fool break out is to seek forgiveness of the one whom you have offended. Speak few words. Offer no excuses. I forget the the British lord from the 19th century who said it, but he said this simple phrase that has stuck with me ever since I read it a couple of years ago. Never complain, never explain. Never complain, never explain. And I think that that advice is so useful when it comes to seeking forgiveness. Just a few weeks ago, somebody offended me. uh, And I had to call him out publicly for it. And afterwards, the person approached me and he said, I'm sorry if I offended you and i said why did you have to say the word if it's pretty clear that you offended me i told you explicitly that you did you know and he said with a look of puzzlement on his face i'm not sure what to do and i thought i don't think i i don't think i have a listening ear here at this point because the the, the simple thing to do is to say I'm sorry, please forgive me for offending you with the things that I said. It wasn't my intention. End of discussion. Simple. Don't complain, don't explain. Just say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. I offended you. I, I shouldn't have. So just say, please forgive me. Seek the forgiveness of the person whom you've offended. Simply and clearly offer no excuses. Speak few words. A third way that we can go about seeking to to, to turn the tide against the quarrel, keeping it from breaking out, is that we always have to seek the truth. We always have to seek the truth. Uh, Solomon says in verse 15 of chapter 17, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. You know, so often we think that in the scriptures, we should never let the guilty person walk, and that that is an abomination to the Lord. And and Solomon would say, yes, the guilty should never go free. But notice what else Solomon also says, is that it's also wrong to condemn the innocent. God finds both to be reprehensible. So another way to say this is is that Solomon is saying we should always side with the truth. We should always seek to side with God. In other words, one of the things that I like to say it this way is that there is always three sides to every dispute. The two disputants and God's side. Because as the two disputants engage in their disagreement, in their court case, whatever, it's often the case that there's enough sin for everybody to go around. Somebody may be the innocent party, but it may be that they're just the lesser guilty party in some cases. Now, Yes, there may be some cases, some instances where somebody is truly innocent of wrongdoing, but what Solomon here is addressing is the idea of never condemning the innocent, never letting the guilty go free. Both are an abomination, which means that in any quarrel, in any dispute, we always have to seek the truth of the matter, always seek to judge in accordance with God's word and in accordance with the truth of God. When Paul, for example, sought to pacify the unrest in Rome between the meat eaters and the vegetarians, he didn't pick sides. He rebuked the meat eaters for not using their strong faith to carry along those weaker brothers. He rebuked the vegetarians for their censorious attitudes towards their stronger brothers. But most importantly, he called both groups to rally around Christ. Romans fourteen seventeen. for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and of peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So ultimately, I think what Solomon is saying here is he's saying, don't let the fight break out to begin with. But if you're wise, you'll remain silent. If you're wise, you'll seek quickly to seek the forgiveness of the person whom you've offended. If you're wise, you'll seek to to settle a dispute, not according to the parties, but ultimately according to the truth that God reveals in his word. So the consequences of foolishness are considerable. The fool suffers a hundred blows of correction and God holds him accountable sometimes by sending his messenger of judgment against him. The person who embraces foolishness and rage and anger visits evil upon himself and his house. Who of us wants any of these consequences? We can easily get tangled in the web of foolish anger if we don't quickly turn away and then we can invite God's discipline upon us. As important as it is to be mindful of such consequences, we shouldn't treat the flight from foolishness as merely avoiding the consequences of sin. If we merely pursue wisdom for its benefits, then we entirely miss Jesus, who's the goal of wisdom. Because the road of wisdom leads us to the cross of Christ. At the cross, we see the love of God poured out upon sinners. We see God's grace opening sinners' hearts so that they can respond in humility to the rebuke of God's law. We see the the grace of God enabling us to turn away from sin and foolishness and anger so that we can exercise self-control and not let our anger run riot like a bear robbed of her cubs. And we can see the grace of God pouring his love out upon us in his truth so that we love his truth more than anything else. And our desire ultimately is to love and to serve God no matter the cost and to point others to that truth of God in Christ. Therefore, beloved in Christ, we should pursue the path of wisdom not simply for its benefits and not merely to avoid the negative consequences of foolishness, but ultimately out of a love for our triune God and a desire for greater conformity unto the image of Christ. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, so often we approach the Christian life like a shrewd businessman. We want to weigh the costs and we want to pursue the most economic route. But Father, your love in Christ is not a matter of frugality or economics, but rather you have poured out the riches of your grace and mercy upon us in Christ. And in so doing, we pray that you would take away our frugality, the economy of prudence, and instead that you would help us to pursue a love a love that has captivated our hearts, a love that says, I will pursue your wisdom at any cost because of our deep desire to please you and to love you, to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we would seek, O Lord, your word and invite your rebuke if it means purging sin from our hearts that we would invite your wisdom, O Lord, so that we would turn away from quarrels, that we would seek the grace of Christ so that we would silence our foolish hearts, if that is the path of wisdom in the cross of Christ, that we would, O Lord, turn away from anger and instead wait patiently upon you to vindicate us in the face of those who wrong us. Regardless of the circumstance in life, O Lord, we pray that you would conform us to the image of your Son, that you would fill our hearts with a passionate and zealous love for you, and that that love would overflow to those who are around us, that they too would know of your love through our humble uh, service and love for them. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.